Hi, I'm Tony Hines and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, great to be here. I'm going to talk about the embedded resource economy. All will become clear, so stay tuned. Economics 101 teaches us land, labor, capital and entrepreneurship are factors of production. Well, what happens when factors of production are embedded in products which themselves are embedded in supply chains? That's what we're going to talk about today. In today's episode, I want to talk about the embedded resource economy. And what do I mean by the embedded resource economy? Well, stay tuned and all will become clear. We hear quite a bit at the moment about the problem of grain tied up in Ukraine and with Russia, with its control of the seaways from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, it's strangling the ports that would normally carry grain to the rest of the world from the Ukraine. Those ports were in Mariupol and Odessa. And so, while there's a stranglehold, the grain can't move. In the meantime, of course, we've seen images on television and reports appearing in the press about the Russians stealing Ukrainian grain for their own purposes and passing it off as belonging to them. It's a form of theft, but this is theft on an international scale carried out by a state. Well, that's only part of the story, and it's a small part of this story. I want to consider what we can learn from history. And Herodotus told us about Egypt, which was the breadbasket for the world in ancient times. And Egypt supplied much of the grain to the Black Sea areas, and of course, to Mediterranean countries, and those surrounding Egypt in Africa. The Nile is the longest river in the world, of course. In ancient times, the valleys flooded every year. And that had been something that had been going on for centuries. A spreading delta thoroughly soaked the rich alluvial soil. This was all reported by Herodotus in his histories. Now today, of course, Egypt imports large quantities of wheat from other countries, including Ukraine. It comes from Canada, South Australia and elsewhere. And you have to ask how this change happened from being the breadbasket to the dependent importer. Egypt is a country with a growing population, of course. And growing populations in dry, hot climates like Egypt, where the temperatures can reach 40 degrees, need water. And one of the questions for any state is how to provide food and water for the population. And you'll know, if you've listened to the Chain Reaction podcast over the past weeks, that I often refer to food security. Not just food security, it's water security too. You need water to survive. It's a basic of human life. And in a country where there's a shortage of water, the question to be asked is, would it be sensible to use the water from the Nile to grow the wheat? Wheat is a thirsty crop. It needs lots of water. That means lots of rain would need to be gathered in the river and used to grow that wheat. And of course, that's what happened for centuries. But the population was much smaller. And so when Egypt today imports the grain it requires, effectively, one could argue it's importing water. 
or at least it's importing embedded water in the wheat it's acquiring from elsewhere. So globalization, when we think about global supply chains, globalization has brought benefits to countries where they've been able to embed resources from elsewhere around the globe. And that's essentially the argument I'm making today about the embedded resource economy. And we do that in all sorts of ways. There's water in all kinds of crops. If we import meat product, we're actually importing meat that's been fed on grain and hence used water as a resource in the supply of that grain. So water is the common denominator here. So the embedded resource in meat and grain and much of the food that we actually import has embedded resources. Now, as well as these embedded resources, it also has embedded carbon, embedded CO2 in the production of the food. And if we think about other products such as oil and gas, if we import those fossil fuels, we're importing embedded resources from elsewhere in the world, but we're also importing embedded CO2. That's been used in the production of the oil and gas. And this continues in the chain, because if we think about the consumption of the oil and gas in the country that's importing it, once again, more CO2 will be released in the process of use. Now, anyone listening to the programme who studied or has a background in economics will know that one of the first things you learn is about the factors of production. And those factors of production, in broad terms, are land, labour, capital and entrepreneurship, the ability to coordinate those other three factors. And when we think about land, it's on the land that we generate food, and it's through labour that we're able to harvest food, plant food. And of course, in the broadest sense, land also includes the oceans of the world. I know it sounds strange, but the geological matter, whether it's above ground or subterranean, would be regarded as the resource of land. Embedded resources are, of course, part of the invisible economy. It's in front of your eyes, but it's invisible. We don't make the connection. All those products that are imported into a country that consumed water, the water is invisible in the product because all we see is the wheat, the grain that we've landed, or the meat that we've imported, but we don't see the water that's gone into the process of development. And I suppose... It's the market that's determined the trade and the terms of trade and the reasons why people make the choices that they do, why countries make the choices that they do, why the state, why the the polis, if you like, or the politicians in a country actually make decisions to grow their own or buy it in. So in effect, these embedded resources that I'm talking about are invisible resources. They're the resources that the importer is bringing in. They're bringing in labour from elsewhere, they're bringing in land from elsewhere, and they're bringing in capital in the sense of what's been invested into those products and processes. On the other side of the coin, we have many countries considering their own positions when it comes to food security at present and energy security. And there are many arguments put forward that you'll hear and read in the press that we're entering a new age of deglobalization. And the question is, are we? And if we are, is that a good thing or is that a not so good thing? On the good side, people argue that countries should be more self-sufficient, invest in their own country and grow their own food, produce their own energy. And of course, what we're actually 
promoting with that particular policy is to return to an age of small international trade. So if a government promotes growth, growth in the economy, growth in trade, and then says, and we're going to be resilient, and we're going to pull back all the things that we buy from everywhere else, we're going to make them here and make the country great again, then there's something amiss, disjointed in the policy that's being argued for. International trade brings many benefits. It allows countries that could not otherwise get particular resources or particular foods or energy to import them from where there is an abundance. And for that country to concentrate its own resources on its own specialisms to produce more of the goods that they can make. And that's what David Ricardo put forward in the 19th century. Ricardo argued that there was comparative advantage to be had by engaging in international trade. The Silk Road, of course, stretching from China into Europe, was one of the earliest trading routes. And of course, that carried clothing, silks, as the name suggests, and small items on that trade route. All the daily things that people need for their lives and livelihood. And so supply chains started off with the small, durable, expensive silks and spices. And of course, much of the sea trade was done with cinnamon and spices, which were shipped around the globe. Much of it back to Spain, or to England, or to the Netherlands. Perhaps what we'd call the old colonies. And I remember reading about nutmeg. Nutmeg was a very valuable spice. And in the 19th century, if you got just one small piece of nutmeg, you could buy a house in London with that nutmeg. It was so valuable. Back in the 1870s, ice was exported from New England to Bengal. I bet you didn't know that. So not water, but blocks of ice. And of course, ice was quite a trade for some time. The northern lakes in the United States, of course, made much ice naturally. The ice that was sent to India was for British colonial officials to cool the houses down. They were sweltering in the heat. And of course, it provided them with cool water and ice cream. The British are partial to ice cream. And apparently even after the six-month sea voyage, because that's how long it took in the 1870s, there was still enough ice to make it worthwhile. Yep, some of it melted on the way, as you'd expect. Innovations, of course, in the 19th century when mechanical steam-powered ice-making machines were developed ended the trade for ice by ship from North America quite rapidly. Managing water and water stocks is going to be part of the future, of course, with climate change. As places get much hotter, temperatures rise and water becomes in shorter supply with the growing world population, it's likely that all countries will have to consider how they manage water carefully. John Macefield, the British poet laureate, wrote an interesting poem on cargoes. And in that poem, he talks about sandalwood, cedarwood and sweet white wine and cargoes of ivory. They were some of the earliest items traded. He also referred to diamonds, emeralds, amethysts, topazes, cinnamon and gold moidores. And of course he refers to coal from Newcastle and firewood and ironware and cheap tin trays, road rails and pig lead. So they were all things in his poem called Cargoes. And it's interesting how trade has developed in all those things that people need for their daily existence. And that's what supply chains are doing really. Supply chains are delivering the goods 
that people need for their lives and living. The other thing of interest, of course, very early on the merchants needed accounting systems to record the trade. And in the 14th and 15th century, Luca Pacioli, an Italian monk, developed double-entry bookkeeping, which actually was quite a technological invention to record the trade in such a systematic way. And Pacioli had learned his mathematics from the Arabic schools and from India, and they had merchant schools in Italy to train people in commerce and the mathematics of commerce. These schools were called abaco schools. Of course, trade wasn't on the same volume that we have today. There were no 20-foot equivalent units, container ships, three football pitches long. The ships were actually quite small. And even right up to the last century, in the 1970s, most of the cargo ships were quite small vessels by today's standards. Our trade changed immensely with the development of containers, and that really drove globalisation. As we know globalisation today, that started really with container shipping. And of course, bulk cargo ships carrying grain or carrying oil and liquid gas, those ships are much larger than in the previous decades. Of course, one consequence of that are things like oil spillages, which pollute the oceans, and of course, all the diesel that drives the ships around the globe. I mentioned in the news roundup this week about Maersk and its aim to have clean green shipping by 2030 in its fleet. And that's one reason it's left the ICS, the International Chamber of Shipping, where it had a board position because the ICS doesn't, uh, doesn't have the same aim. When we think of our problems today and we think of the shortages of energy, this is not new either. Britain used to have firewood ships, ships that carried firewood. And between 1500 and 1630, the price of firewood increased sevenfold. So fuel is always an issue and energy is always an issue. There's nothing new under the sun, as Copernicus might have said. The other thing one can say about many supply chains, particularly in food and agriculture, is that they're shaped far more than we think by the politics rather than the economics of the situation. And you can think about all kinds of examples. Bananas, asparagus, avocados. These are mainly seasonal fruits. And we wouldn't have many of these things in Europe unless we were able to import them year-round from the tropical parts of the world. Most of the asparagus, for example, is brought in by aircraft from Peru. We do grow asparagus in Europe, and it's a very short season. And we do grow asparagus in the United States, a slightly longer season, but not as long as those in the tropics. So it's important to remember that some supply chains, particularly in food, are shaped far more by the politics and the lobbying by the various interest groups than they are by market forces. We might like to believe they're shaped by market forces, but not really. In the case of asparagus from Peru, it was a concerted effort by European and American political regimes in an attempt to do some good by getting youngsters off drugs 
So it's quite often tariff regimes that regulate the supply chains, and preferential treatment of certain items can shape and distort market forces. And that's why the politics of food supply chains are far more important than economics will ever be. When changes are made to policies in food production and agriculture, they're quite often driven by particular interest groups, and they lobby heavily to get their own way. Now, when you think about all sorts of crops, if you think about tobacco crops, the tobacco industry lobbied for a long time to ensure that the crops of tobacco were freely entering into particular countries and tariffs were kept low. Again, we can think about other crops such as bananas and we've had various trade wars over bananas. Trade wars often erupt when there are different political groupings who decide for one reason or another, to change the rules of the game. Sugar crops in the Caribbean drove the slave trade. The tea crops in India drove the British to dominate the tea market. The cotton crops grown in India, processed in Lancashire in the United Kingdom, and then transported to the United States during the American Civil War. And these are all interests that are being served to shape those supply chains. And today, of course, the United States protects its textile industry in some ways with homegrown cotton giving preference over imported cotton, even though that cotton can be produced more efficiently elsewhere. So it's not always a matter that governments make decisions for the benefit of the population that they were elected to serve, it's quite often the case that there is a particular interest that they're looking after. And it might be a genuine interest. It might be to do with the people that they were elected to serve because they might want to preserve jobs in a particular industry. So it's a form of protectionism that drives the motivation in some cases. So I began the episode talking about the embedded economy. And the embedded economy is, of course, interconnected with the political economy that surrounds it, demonstrated by the influences that that has on making these choices about these different types of supply chain. And that's taking place today with all kinds of initiatives and decisions. Some of them end up in trade wars and some of them end up in real wars. And we only have to think about how particular industries are favoured or not favoured by governments or by international communities to see that these political decisions shape supply chains as much, if not more, than the economics of supply chains. And that's, of course, why we have trade agreements. It's why we have trade barriers with taxes or quotas. And it's why we have redistribution of resources around the globe as much as the invisible hand of economics shaping those supply chains. So when you look at a supply chain and you examine what's going on in that supply chain, you should think around the structures that support the supply chain and, of course, things outside of the immediate decisions of firms and business and look at the politics shaping the way in which that supply chain works. We've got all this stuff going on all the time. 
with trade agreements, with Brexit, with the WTO, the World Trade Organization, with individual governments and their decisions over trade. And the embedded resource economy lies underneath this layer of complexity. What the embedded resource economy does is it redistributes resources from one place to another place. So a place, for example, we started with the example of shortage of water in a country affecting the production of a crop, but you can still get hold of the crop by buying it on a world market, and effectively you're embedding the resource into your economy from another geographic region or place. And we do it all the time. And some of the embedded resource economy is useful and for the good. And some of it, of course, is damaging. It's damaging because it changes the nature of resource distribution. And in a world in which power systems prevail, those power systems can take resources from places where they are needed to places where they're demanded. And that's what supply chains do. They move things around. And supply chains are shaped as much by politics as economics and by power as much as demand. So, something to think about. So that's it for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back on Saturday with the News Roundup. All things impacting supply chains this week. I'll see you then. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines.